We're in Exodus uh, chapter 2, but we're starting from uh, the last verse of chapter 1. Now, last week we finished our five-week series in the core values. Um, and what, we've, what we decided to do is for the next six weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to follow along in the Bible reading plan. So if you are keeping up to date with the Bible reading plan, whatever is assigned for that Monday, the Sunday before we're going to uh, pick a passage and, and I'm going to preach on that. That way, uh, as you get to that portion of the scripture the next day, you'll have some more things to chew on a little bit. And so that leads us in Gen- uh, Exodus, because if you're following along in the plan, this past Friday we finished Genesis. So, hey guys, if you are following, you are 166 of the way there. So, <laughs> congratulations. Um, but we're in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, starting with verse 22, and we're going to read into uh, chapter 2, verse 10. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast him into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him there three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, as we turn now to look at Exodus and to consider this chapter about the the birth of Moses, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be present, that he would give to us insight and understanding that he would give to us a sharp mind to think through what your scripture says, but he would also give to us a bigger heart to love you and to receive from you what you have in store for us. God, I pray for listening ears. I pray for um, a guarded heart because we know the enemy wants to distract us from hearing your word. And God, I pray that ultimately you would be honored, that your word would be proclaimed and your people edified so that Christ would receive all of the glory. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Recently, I've had a few conversations with with a couple of you in the church about some of the newer Korean dramas. Um, Now, when we talk about this, I'm not sure if you're genuinely recommending them or if you're secretly testing me to see if uh, I I watch these dramas or not. It's my personality. Uh, I'm the type of person, I can't just jump right into something mid-season or, or um, in, in the middle of a movie. I can't just sit down and, and watch. I'm the type of person who has to watch a movie from beginning to end, and I have to watch all of it 
So sometimes when I'm watching a movie and I'm, and I'm about to sneeze, I have to pause it because I'm scared I'm going to miss some dialogue. I'm that kind of person. Um, and so I never understand. It actually frustrates me if I'm, if I'm watching something and, you know, somebody comes over and, and just in the middle of a movie I'm watching, they sit down and they're like, hey, what are you watching? And they're watching it. And, and I'm thinking, how are you doing this? How can you just come in mid-movie, mid-story, mid-plot? And the reason I feel that way is because I, I feel like when you come in in the middle of something, you're actually missing the full effect of the narrative. Right? The story has character development. It has, it has movement to it. And, and how can you enjoy it? How can you really feel that effect when you've missed half of it? And so I thought of that because as we begin, and we're looking at Exodus 2, there's a whole history that we've skipped over. And so in one sense, we're not doing justice to it when we just jump right into it. The history of Exodus 2 isn't just Exodus 1. The history of Exodus 2 is all of the book of Genesis. You see, Exodus is part two of a five-part series called the Pentateuch, which refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. And what we need to see is that the themes and the story are all connected, because when Exodus 1 begins, we're told that the Hebrews are still in Egypt, and they've had moved there 400 years earlier because of a famine in the land. This is what the last 10 chapters of Genesis is all about, with Moses, or Joseph being sold into slavery and the famine and his family moving down. And so when Exodus begins, the Hebrews, there are so many that they begin to pose a threat to Pharaoh. But this is actually a really good thing because it shows that the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, that he would have offspring that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Well, Pharaoh is paranoid. He is afraid that the Hebrews might join another army and then rebel against the Egyptians. So he begins a systematic oppression and forces them into slavery. But here's the thing. The more that they are oppressed, the Bible says the more they multiply and the more they multiplied, the more they threatened Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is driven to new depths of insanity, and eventually he instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the male Hebrew infants as soon as they are born. He's commanding infanticide. But even this attempt at population control doesn't work. And so as we enter in today's story, Pharaoh has actually reached a new low. He has reached the lowest depth of his depravity because he issues and calls forth for a genocide. In verse 22, he commands all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, scholars have noted this is not every newborn son. This is actually how I had read it. But Pharaoh is not merely repeating the decree that he had already given. This is a new command. Before he was telling the Hebrew midwives to kill the children as they were being born. Here, Pharaoh is commanding every son that has already been born, drown them in the Nile River. So we see Pharaoh's increasing oppression from slavery to infanticide to genocide. And so we get to the story, and it's gloomy. It is dark. One author put it this way. He said, Egypt was once a land of salvation, but it has become their death sentence. And this is where we pick up this afternoon. 
So our gospel truth as we consider Exodus chapter 2 is this. God is present with his people as he prepares and preserves a savior for them. God is present with his people as he prepares and preserves a savior for them. So we're going to look at this gospel truth under four points. A savior promised, a savior prepared, a savior preserved, and a savior prefigured. So first, a savior promised. You know, Moses is a very important and well-known figure in the Old Testament. Some may even consider him to be the most important character. Uh, We know Hollywood certainly has. Because in 1998, if you remember, some of you, DreamWorks came out with a movie called Prince of Egypt, which was an animated film about the life of Moses. And this wasn't some kind of B-rated movie. I mean, it had an all-star cast. It had Val Kilmer. It had Patrick Stewart, Sandra Bullock, Michelle Pfeiffer, Steve Martin, Danny Glover. I mean, this was an all-star cast. They put a lot of money into making this film. Now, some of you may not remember that, and some of you... Can't forget that famous depiction of Moses by Charlton Heston in the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments. Some of you remember seeing that in theaters. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're not that old. But, you know, for some of you, that's a classic film. And then some of the younger people are like, that's not a classic. That's an ancient film. And maybe some of the younger ones are like, who is Charlton Heston? There was that huge Hollywood portrayal. And then, of course, you know that Moses has kept people's interest when actually, 60, you know, 60 years later, 2014, Ridley Scott came out with the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. I mean, it was starring Christian Bale, uh, Sigourney Weaver, Ben Kingsley. You know, people know Moses. They're fascinated with his life because his life is interesting. You have his birth, this birth drama that we're reading about today. We have the burning bush, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the Ten Commandments, manna from the sky, water from a rock, the golden calf. The list goes on and on and on. Hollywood can make a whole decade worth of movies focusing on the life of Moses. Now, of course, for the nation of Israel, the most important event was the crossing of the Red Sea because this was their liberation from slavery in Egypt. So it's equivalent to the Revolutionary War for Americans. And Moses was the face of this freedom campaign. And so it comes as no surprise when we get to this chapter and we see that it's entirely about Moses. We see that because in this story, only one person is named. Did you notice that? Only one person is named, and it's Moses. Now, Moses is writing the own book, and so it would seem almost a little self-centered. But you start in verse 1, and when he's referencing his mom and dad, what does he say? He simply calls his mom a Levite woman, his dad a man from the house of Levi. Uh, later, we're going to find out that their names in Exodus 6 are Amram and Jochebed. That's Amram's the father's name, and Jochebed's Moses' mother's name. But they're not named here. And then, of course, we have Moses' sister. She plays an important role, but she's also left unnamed. And we're going to find out her name later eventually is Miriam. Now we get to the Pharaoh of Egypt. He is the ruler of the most powerful nation at the time. He's considered to be a god by his own people. And he is given no name, simply called Pharaoh. 
And last, we have the compassionate Egyptian princess who disobeys her father's decree, brings Moses in, raises him with all of the greatest riches and comforts in the world. And Moses leaves her unnamed. And all of this draws attention to verse 10, the name of Moses. In verse 10, we read this. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. You see, the reason this makes sense, in verse 5, we're told that Pharaoh's daughter, when she went down to the riverbank, she saw this basket with a child in it, and she took pity on him. And so that's what this is referring to. I drew him out of the water. Now, that, the reason his name is Moses, because Moses in Hebrew, is, uh, it comes from the verb that means to draw out. So she saved Moses' life by drawing, drawing him out of the water, bringing him out of the water. Now, for us, that's like, okay, that's, that's an interesting way of naming your child. But for an Israelite, as they were reading this or as they were hearing this, they wouldn't miss the connection that maybe some of us has, have missed. The connection, of course, is to the most important event in the history of the nation, Just as Moses was saved by being drawn out of the water, so too God would eventually save Israel through Moses by drawing them out of the water as they crossed the Red Sea. The foreshadowing is unmistakable. This child, Moses, he is the Savior that God has promised to Israel. And this is the connection that we are supposed to make. God was getting his solution ready from day one. But pay attention to this fact. Not only is no other character named, but God is not even mentioned once in this passage. You see, all that God was doing, he was doing behind the scenes. Even when his name was absent, he was very present with his people. He was getting ready this promised Savior, and he leaves clues of this all throughout the story. In fact, there's another clue that God is at work behind the scenes. Right in the middle of this story, right in the middle of this passage, we read this, that Pharaoh's daughter, she came down to bathe in the river, and then she saw the basket in the reeds, and when she opened it, she heard the baby crying. Now take notice of those actions. She came down, she saw a basket, she heard a crying. Now why is that important? Because later in Exodus 3, when God speaks to Moses through the burning bush, you know what God says in verse 7? I have surely seen the affliction of my people, and I have heard their cry, and I have come down to deliver them. And God says, I'm going to deliver them through you, Moses. Do you see the verb parallels? God is hinting at what he's going to do through Pharaoh's daughter. He's going to come down to deliver. He has seen them. He has heard their cry. See, God is leaving fingerprints. He's leaving clues that he's at work behind the stage. He is orchestrating salvation for Israel. He has promised them a Savior, and he is getting things ready for them. Now, Maybe some of you in here this afternoon, maybe you need to be reminded that even when God seems absent in your life, he is working behind the scenes. Maybe some of you need to be reminded that he is present with you, but he may be unseen. 
because he's getting things ready. You see, God leaves these little Easter eggs for us to find. It's like a Disney film. May you have eyes to see his hand at work in your life when it seems that his face is hidden from you. God is present with his people as he promises a Savior. Second, a Savior is prepared. A Savior prepared. In verse 1, we're told uh, nothing about Moses' parents' names, but we're told this little interesting fact, that the dad is from the house of Levi and that the mom is a Levite woman. Now, it's interesting for Moses that he doesn't care about his parents' names, but about their tribal lineage. At the time of Moses' birth, you have to know this, though, the tribes of Israel weren't yet established. The tribes of Israel aren't created until after they leave Egypt. By the time Moses is writing the book, the Levites, of course, they are a tribe, and the Levites are associated with the priesthood and priestly duties, and God sets the Levites apart for these tasks of worship and involvement in the tabernacle. So the question is, If the Levites aren't yet a tribe called to do priestly duties, religious duties, why does Moses focus in on this detail? Why does he want our attention here? And I believe the point is this. Moses is showing us that he is already qualified to be a servant of God before God has even established the qualifications. Moses has met the requirements before there were even requirements. This is showing that God is preparing the Savior for Israel. And he did it through two Levite parents. So that by the time God made the requirements, Moses was already eligible to be God's servant and to be Israel's leader. You see, God is preparing a Savior for them. And secondly, we we see this. We see Moses' preparation through his adoption. Moses isn't just rescued, but He is brought into Pharaoh's family. As it says, he becomes the princess's son in verse 10. Now, when Moses, think about this, when Moses leaves Egypt, when he leads the the exodus out of Egypt, he leaves Egypt completely undone and in shambles. First, when Moses takes the Israelites out, he marches out of Egypt with the majority of Egypt's workforce. Millions of people. Right? That would have had devastating economic ramifications for Egypt. And then add to that, before the Exodus, what was Moses doing? He was throwing plagues upon plagues upon the Egyptian land, which would have ruined their fields, which would have devastated their agricultural system. So again, total economic disability. Third, it says, when the Israelites left in Exodus 12, it says, God gave to the Israelites favor so that the the Egyptians gave them everything. And then it says this, and so the Egyptians were plundered. So as as Israel left, they actually stole all the people's personal wealth. And then finally, think about this, in the Red Sea crossing, a large portion of Pharaoh's army that he had sent after them is destroyed in the waters militarily disabling Egypt and leaving them absolutely defenseless. And so it's kind of an amazing story. All of this through Moses. I mean, he brings the nation down to its knees. You know, I like those spy kind of films, and in movies like 
like Jason Bourne, there's always, you know, that one guy, that spy who's able to bring down a whole organization with a pen, a lighter, and a stick of gum, you know? And in these kinds of movies, these individuals, these spies, these assassins, they're so elite, they're so capable because they're trained by the very best, and, and usually these movies have these, uh, these parts where you get a sense of their background. They're like, somebody goes, well, who is that person? And then the other guy's like, you don't know him? Tell me about him. And, oh, he was educated at West Point and trained with the Navy SEALs, and he has his PhD in chemical engineering. And, and then the audience goes, oh, that makes sense. That's why he was able to build a bomb from a bottle of soap and a pack of lightsabers. You know, like, that's why he was able to get to their secret base on the moon. Like, and it makes sense. So you ask the question, how was Moses able to bring down the whole nation of Egypt? How was he able to utterly lay waste to this nation? Where was he educated? Where was he trained? Where was he prepared? And the answer is in Egypt by Egyptians. Think about this. How did Moses become the leader he was? He received the very best everything because he was part of the Egyptian royalty. Moses was fed, protected, and trained in Pharaoh's own house with Pharaoh's own advisors at the cost of Pharaoh's own money by the oversight of Pharaoh's own daughter. Yes, it's true. God, of course, called Moses. God equipped Moses for the task. God works powerful things through Moses. No doubt about that. But you must also understand, God is the one who placed Moses where he was to receive the training, to be prepared in the way he was prepared. He put Moses in the Egyptian court to receive all of its benefits. It makes sense, right? Apostle Paul was able to travel the world as a missionary proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because he had Roman citizenship. You, you guys, see, listen to the way Stephen puts it in Acts chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. This is what Stephen says. And when Moses was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. God orchestrated Moses' adoption and upbringing to provide everything Israel would need in their Savior. Nobody knew the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian worldview, the Egyptian mindset better than Moses would have. And God used all of that preparation to form the Savior who would lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. God used Moses' adoption. He uses his bicultural experience, his education. Everything that happened in Moses' life, he used it to do what God called him to do. Now, this is not in the Bible. This is not in here, so I'm going to... I saw a pastor once do this. He said, what I'm going to talk about is not in here, so I'm going to step over here. (laughs) This is what I imagine. You think, okay, Moses, he grew up in the Egyptian household. He had everything he wanted. That's great. You know what? I think Moses' life was very difficult. It says that Moses was given back to Pharaoh's daughter. We're not told when, but it's probably around three or four years old after he's weaned, right? Which means Moses had a memory of his mother. How many times was Moses playing in the palace, saw his mother in the distance, and knew that he couldn't talk to her, that he couldn't hug her or kiss her? How, how, how much did a little boy understand why his mother would have given him up? That must have been painful. Also, 
the Egyptians were very racist. If you read, if you remember this story in Genesis, when Joseph and his brothers come to get food, it says what? That the Hebrews couldn't eat with the Egyptians. Why? Because it's abominable to the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews. They're racist. And we know that Moses wasn't the, one of those guys with, you know, an ambiguous appearance because as soon as the princess opens the basket, she goes, oh, he's a Hebrew. He clearly looked like an Israelite. So Moses must have grown up absolutely cast to the side, marginalized. And, and we know this too because remember he, he stands up for a Hebrew, this is later on in chapter 2, and he kills the Egyptian and then he stands up for another Hebrew, and he says, hey, why are you guys fighting? And even the Hebrews reject him. What, are you going to kill me like you killed that guy? He's rejected by all, everything. Moses' life is difficult, yet God uses all of that to begin to prepare Moses to be the leader that Israel needs. Maybe some of you in here need to be reminded this afternoon that God is present in your life, and he has, he's using, he's going to use all of your life experiences, your past your failures, your successes, your upbringing, your struggles, your achievement, your family, even your ethnicity. God uses all of that for his purposes. You see, whether you perceive your life and your circumstances as blessing or curse, whether you perceive it as good or bad, wanted or unwanted, God is present with you, and he's going to use that to prepare you to do his purposes. May you have eyes to see that God is preparing you to do the works to which he has called you. God is present with his people as he prepares a savior. Thirdly, a savior is preserved. Now, in chapter 1, verse 22, Pharaoh commands that every son must be killed because they are a threat to him. They are a threat to him. They are a threat to his throne. And he says, oh, well, you know, the Hebrew daughters will let them live. Ironically, though, it's the Hebrew women who preserve the life of God's promised savior and eventually lead to Egypt's downfall, right? Pharaoh shoots himself in the foot. Now, the symbolism and significance of how Moses was preserved needs to be considered. We're told this. Look at verse 3. It says this. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now, you may be tempted to read basket and imagine a a, a type of a flimsy picnic basket made of straw that you put a nice little lunch in, and you can imagine Moses' mother gently putting it down by a serene Nile riverbank. But that's not how the original readers would have read it. Because the word for a basket here in Hebrew, it only appears twice in the Old Testament. It appears here in Exodus chapter 2, and it appears in Genesis chapter 6 to 9. And that Hebrew word is tavat. And tavat is translated in Genesis 6 to 9, not as basket, but you know what? Ark. Genesis 6 to 9 is the story of Noah and the flood. And that word tavat that's used here, that they translate basket, is the same word that's used about 25 times in Genesis as the word ark. So the picture isn't Jacobed making a little straw basket, but she is engineering a type of ark in order to save and preserve Moses' life. Now, you've got to see the thematic connections here. If you remember the story of Moses, Mo, uh, Noah, it goes like this. The wickedness of man was so great in the land that God decides to blot out all of mankind by sending a judgment 
uh, flood, judgment by water. But Noah finds favor in God's eyes, and so Noah is told by God to build an ark which will preserve him and his family from the flood. So that's how the story goes. And then, of course, uh, through the ark, Noah and his family are preserved when everybody else in the world has been destroyed. And then out of that, God begins to populate the earth again with a new people. That's, that's basically the story in a nutshell. Now, when you consider Moses' birth story, you actually see a lot of the same elements at play. Noah's floodwaters represent the certainty of every single person's death by drowning. The Nile River also represents the certainty of every Hebrew boy's death by drowning. Noah and his family are preserved from the judgment waters through a tavat, an ark that's made of gopher wood. Moses is preserved from the judgment waters through a tavat, an ark, a basket made of bulrush. From Noah, God begins a new humanity and forms a new people. From Moses, God begins a new nation and forms a new people he calls Israel. So here's the point. In Genesis, it's absolutely clear that God is the one who preserves Noah and his family. That part's clear. But when we get to Exodus 2, we may be under the mistaken assumption to think, oh, it wasn't God who preserved Moses. It was Jacobet's smart plan. It was Miriam's quick thinking. It was the Egyptian princess's compassionate heart. But we'd be missing the connection God wants us to see. Just as God preserved Noah, so too God is preserving Moses, even though it seems like God is not here. God is mightily at work. And he does this through people. God uses other people as his hands and his feet. God even uses the unlikely the women in the text, the daughters of the Hebrews, that Pharaoh thought, I don't need to worry about them. God uses these to preserve the Savior he is sending to Israel. Maybe some of you need to be reminded this afternoon that God may be at work in your life through other people. That in moments when it feels like God is distant and God is not there, when it feels like God's not ministering to you, that he's actually sending you help. He's sending you encouragement. He's sending you prayers through others. We're not supposed to be like that man who was once drowning and he called out, God, save me. And then the rescue boat came and he said, you need help? And he said, no, it's okay. God's going to save me. And then the helicopter came by and let down a rope and he said, yeah, grab it. And he said, no, it's okay. God's going to save me. And of course, that man drowned and went to heaven, marched right up to God. God turned around and said, eh, you're a dummy. <laughs> because I sent to you help through the people. You were just so arrogant and so prideful that you didn't recognize it. In the same way, God preserves us. God keeps us. He doesn't just send a hand and, and scoop Moses out of the Nile in the same way he doesn't send a hand and scoop the <laughs> Hebrews out of Egypt. Sometimes we think that's what we want. I'm in this situation, God, I need help. I, I feel like I'm losing myself, and oh, can't you just deliver me? We don't realize that God is sending people to encourage you, counsel, prayer. May you have eyes to see how God works through the ordinary course of events, through the ordinary relationships in life, through ordinary people, and he's using people to keep you to himself. God is present with his people as he preserves a savior. Now, we see that God is with his people. He is working out by promising 
by preparing, by preserving Moses, who's going to be the Savior for Israel. And then from that, we can glean the lessons. Okay, God is at work in our lives even when we don't see him. He's working behind the scenes. That God is using the things and using our background. He's redeeming those things. He's using people around us to prepare us and to preserve us. But ultimately, the reason God gives us these 10 verses in Exodus 2 is to show us this truth. Moses is not the ultimate savior. Rather, God would come to be present with his people through one who is greater than Moses. You see, as heroic and as celebrated as Moses is for Israel, he only prefigured a true Savior that God intended to send all along. That's our fourth point, a Savior prefigured. You see, Moses was sent on behalf of God to lead Israel out of a physical bondage in Egypt. But through Moses, God was prefiguring, he was previewing a greater plan he had for the world. You know, God's plan was not just to send a representative like Moses, but that he would send himself, his own son, that he would come down into the world in flesh in order to lead not a physical liberation from Egypt, but to lead a spiritual exodus out of slavery to sin. So God wanted us to see in Moses a greater Savior. God wanted us to see in the Exodus a greater escape. God wanted us to see in Pharaoh a greater oppressor. This is why the New Testament is full of parallels between Jesus and Moses. This is why Matthew in the New Testament, actually, check this out. Matthew reports that Jesus also was born under a power-hungry, death-bent ruler named King Herod, who, like Pharaoh, issued a decree to have all the male children in Bethlehem killed, just like Moses. This is why Matthew shows Jesus was protected and hidden by Joseph and Mary in the same way Moses was protected and hidden by Jochebed and Miriam. This is why Matthew 1 begins with a lineage, a lineage that doesn't qualify Jesus as the priest of Levi, which it did to Moses, but qualified Jesus as the king from the line of David, the fulfillment of God's blessing in Abraham. This is why Matthew includes the help of the wise men who come. They are Gentiles. In the same way that Moses was helped by Pharaoh's daughter, a Gentile. You see, God ultimately is not just with his people, but God comes to be among his people as he prepared and preserved for us Jesus Christ, the true Savior. Him come to set us free from slavery by dying under its hand in our place. Moses defeated Pharaoh. How did he do it? How did he undo Pharaoh's hold? Not by fleeing from Pharaoh's house, but by growing up in Pharaoh's house. Isn't that interesting? And in the same way, Jesus Christ defeated sin and he undid sin's hold over us, not by fleeing from death, but by entering into the tomb and dismantling it from the inside out. But here's why Moses only prefigured the true Savior. The Nile River was meant for death, but as Moses was placed in it, God reversed its purpose so that Moses didn't die, but Moses was spared and he lived. The cross in the Roman culture was also meant for death. But as Jesus Christ was placed on it, God reversed its purpose, not so Jesus would live, but so that through Jesus' death, all who would believe in him might find life. 
Moses was spared his life to save Israel. But Jesus Christ spent his life to save the world. Moses was being prepared and his life preserved to be a type of savior, but Jesus Christ came as the fulfillment. He came prepared not to preserve his life, but to give it up on the cross to break sin's chains. Moses was delivered from death, but Jesus was delivered to death so that each one of us could be set free from our sin, from our guilt, and from our shame. Jesus is the Savior that all of us need for the freedom from sin that none of us could achieve because he died the death that all of us deserve. See, this is the faithfulness of God who is always with you. He is working out your story of redemption and rescue as far back as Israel was in Egypt. Before you were born, God was already at work setting up the stage of history to come to work out your salvation by preparing for you and preserving a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our God is incredible, amen? This means, this is what this means. You can read Exodus 2 and you can believe every part of it in here. If God really is present with his people as he prepared and preserved the Savior, then you can bank your life that all of the promises here are true. You can believe that God is working behind the scenes of your life when you don't see him. God's absence, God's hiddenness is not his absence. He is at work just as he was promising a savior. This means you can trust that all the details of your life, all the pain, all the trials, all the suffering you're going through, God is working that out and he's preparing you for some purpose just as he was preparing the savior. This means that you can believe that he's at present at work in you and he's ministering to you through others and sending people to encourage you, to preserve you when you feel like you're in moments of becoming undone in the same way that he preserved the Savior. Tomorrow morning, tomorrow lunch, tomorrow in the evening, maybe tomorrow when you're at a red light and you're doing your Bible reading plan, whichever it may be, as you're reading through Exodus 1 and 2, may may our time this afternoon, may it fuel your worship, may it stir your affections, may it encourage your heart, May it build your faith and may it draw you closer to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even in the Old Testament, we see the gospel. We see your gracious provision in preparing for us one who would come and deliver us from slavery to sin, Satan, and to death. Father, as my friends, as we all press on in our discipleship, in our desire to know you, in our reading and commitment to your word, I pray that you would constantly meet us. You would meet us, and Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes. As Elder Moon prayed, that we would have the eyes of our hearts opened to know you more. And we thank you, God, that you give us reminders all throughout the scriptures of the way that you were working in history to bring us to yourself. Father, for you have set us free. We know, Father, 
Jesus Christ said himself in John chapter 8. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Father, let us taste of freedom, knowing that the greater Moses has set us free from a greater Pharaoh in a greater Exodus. He has liberated us and given us newness of life. We pray these things in his precious name. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the God, the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forever. Now hear the dismissal. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Go in peace.